This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. We're going to slip in a mini episode right about here because Aaron and I have a episode on childhood wounds uh, ready to go, locked and loaded, but I realized there was a really important concept that you really needed to learn about first, and that is the concept of object relations. So object relations theory states that our key attachment figures, such as our mom, our dad, our grandparents, maybe our church communities, anybody who featured prominently as caregiver in your life, they shape our ego development. Self-identities are formed in relationship to these key people in our life, and that involves a few things. The first thing is what they actually did or didn't do in our young lives, but also our experience or perception of what they did or didn't do. Both those things are at play. And that shows up differently depending on the way your brain works. The basis of ego development relies on two key functions. The first is called nurture. The nurturing function is really about feeling seen and known, of recognizing that you're loved unconditionally It speaks to a feeling of inner wholeness and being held. The second function is called the protective function, and that has to do with feeling safe, confident. It builds autonomy and preps you to go out into the world and act upon the world, stand on your own feet. So you can actually really see how these two things are required to be a whole human. You need to be able to feel like your deepest self was recognized and loved and held and known to have experienced true connection, which gives you an inner fortitude and an inner security. But at the same time, you also need to have been loved in such a way and equipped in such a way that you can walk free on your own and go out into the world and be able to move about even if those key connections fall away. So object relations theory says that each of our little brains responded to uh, a lack or a failure or, or just a miss in one or both of these key functions. And so here we are with another set of triads. You guys have already been completely inundated with um, new information and Enneagram's already complicated and you've learned about other triads, body, head, heart, etc. But I'm going to throw another three out there because they're really important. One, four, and seven, they're part of a triad called the frustration triad. And what that involves is a deep sense of what could or should be and a frustration that that is not actually a perceived reality in your life. So there, there seems to be something that's never quite attainable. And there's a sense of hunting and searching for an ideal, which means that contentment can be pretty elusive. And there's a striving that that kind of never ends with these frustration types, essentially as babies, ones, fours, and sevens in response to the unintentional or intentional failure of their caregivers to provide one of those two key functions responded to that with a sense of frustration and a ingrained assumption that the ideals of attaining those two functions in any relationship will never actually be met. And there is this low-level sense of frustration that is always present because of that. 
So the next triad is called the attachment triad. The types that fall into this triad are types 3, 6, and 9. And these three, interestingly, subconsciously refuse to really acknowledge or name any failure on the part of a caregiver, because that would mean a sense of disconnect, and that is absolutely not an option with these types, who connection is so deeply important to them. And so instead what happens is there is this subconscious adapting to the caregiver that produces behavior and tests out different behavior to see what will elicit the response of connection that they're looking for. So they find a way to feel like they're connected by making little adjustments here and there and figuring out what works and what doesn't. And then that becomes a habit. It becomes their way of feeling connected in the world. The triad that is relevant to us eights is one we share with two and five. And those three types are part of uh, what is called the rejection triad. Um, and this one really <laughs> it definitely hurt a little bit to sit with. Um, but as I, as I sat with it, I really began to feel the truth of it. So here it goes. So what happens with these types is when they experience a failure on the part of their caregivers to either um, provide nurture or protection, they cut it off. They amputate the part that they were looking for that they felt wasn't provided. And um, in order for themselves to survive and, and not hurt so much over the loss of that, they just cut it away and they live with an over-identification to the opposite one, uh, the one that they felt was more attainable. And we, in this triad, experience the failure of the provision of either of those two functions as a kind of rejection. That's why it's named that way. So I'll talk you through what each of those types actually does with that. As the theory goes, twos, their little brains were impacted most by the failure of a parent to provide the protective function specifically. So the function that would have given them self-autonomy and confidence and the ability to really um, walk out into the world confidently. And so what little twos did is they essentially amputated that and they said, I guess I'm never going to feel protected. And so what they do is they identify too much with nurture. They become nurture. They begin to self-identify as nurturers. And what they do is they go out, out into the world and they offer their superpower of nurture as a way to trade for protection. They say, I will help. I will care. I will nurture you. And you will stand up for me, protect me, and make me feel secure. I will lean on you for my confidence. You can see how it's very transactional in nature. Interestingly enough, the five works a little bit differently. Their little brains subconsciously felt deeply impacted by both a failure in nurture and a failure of protection. And so what happens there remarkably is, as the theory goes, they amputated both those things. They said, okay, I guess I'm never going to feel protected or nurtured by my environment. And so I'm just going to go ahead and cut away both those things. And I'm going to live in my mind. I'm going to just retreat up into my mind and it will be my fortress, my safety, and I will not be impacted by the world at all. Um, and that's why fives are often referred to as, as being unaffected by the world. 
And then finally, eights. Uh, yeah, this one really, this definitely hit hard. And it, it'll probably resonate. It certainly fits with everything that we've learned about eightness. It's basically the opposite of what a two does. So in our little minds, we really felt impacted by a lack of nurture. Somewhere along the way, when we were little ones, we were holding out our hearts, holding out our big soft hearts to our caregivers and saying, will you see me? Will you love me completely and fully as myself? Will you adore this person that I am? Do you fully know me? Can you handle all of me? And we feel like our caregivers missed us. They didn't see us. And that hurt so, so much that we killed that function dead. We said, you know what? I guess we're never going to be known. We're never going to be understood. We're never going to be held fully. And so we decided that nurture was absolutely not essential for us. And we amputated that. And then we aligned and over-identified with the protective function. And we said, okay, well, we are going to become protection. We are going to embody strength and courage and autonomy and confidence and all of those things. And that will be who we are. And then like twos, we use it transactionally. So we go out into the world and we say, listen, I will be your strength and I will be your protection and I can lend you my confidence. And in exchange for that, I'll feel connected to you. And in that whole transaction, there is no hint of us actually giving away our heart. There is nothing about that that involves giving or receiving nurture, right? When someone tries to nurture us, isn't there a sense of squirmy discomfort? And we kind of recoil from it because it feels like to accept that would feel weak and vulnerable. And conversely, we can't offer it very easily because we're not practiced at it. We don't identify with that. We identify far more with our um, our soldier-like job of protecting. It's like we kind of think, who wants our heart anyway? Why would they want that? That's not what we're good at. Like, what I really offer is this. And it becomes hard to even believe someone would want our heart at all. And so you see what's happening here is that we are so exquisitely primed to feel so wounded and hurt by rejection that we now offer the thing that will hurt less if it's rejected. So an eight who holds out their offer of protection to someone, if that gets turned down or rejected, you know what, that might, that might hurt a little bit, but it would hurt a whole lot more if we held out our offer of our heart and that got rejected. And so it's very self-protective. Go back, think about your attachments. A lot of this is subconscious. Like I said, it might have happened when you were a little, little baby. But you might also have memories of feeling like your parents missed you somehow or didn't see you. And you can just think about how that might have shaped and affected you. See if that informs you a little bit more and gives you insight into your personality. So again, I think this is really helpful. And I'll be really curious to hear what you guys learn from this. In the show notes, I'm going to list a few episodes from a podcast that really, really taught me a lot about this and a few websites where you can go and read more about these triads. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface and you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. (laughs) 